You guys got that? You good? Yeah. As always, uh, an amazing overview. And we're going to just double click on uh, one or two things that was highlighted there that I do think helps us kind of you know, place this book uh, firmly in its position in the grand narrative of the Old Testament that we're journeying together. Let me pray first and then uh, we'll jump straight in. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Jeremiah, who is your servant. Lord, thank you for this uh, Bible book that comes to us to instruct us today. And I ask for your Holy Spirit to be present as I teach and to be present as we listen and so that we may be changed uh, as a result of sitting under your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Blaise Pascal said this, The heart has its reasons which reason does not know. The heart has its reasons which reason does not know. And it's really saying that actually there's this thing in our chest, all right? There's this, this seat of emotions, there's these, these desires that actually sometimes we act out of it that just, it makes us do things that, that our brains sometimes, you know, it makes no sense. Uh, you just think of the impulses of love and hate that comes from this, you know, what we call the heart. And it's not the actual muscle that's beating in your chest. We all know actually what it refers to, you know, in, in every culture, this is a fairly, uh, un, you know, we all understand what it means when we talk about our heart. And to have a soft heart is an amazing thing. To have a, 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 a hard heart is a, is a terrible thing. When, when our hearts are soft, actually it, we, we actually find ourselves going through life uh, it's in a less bumpy manner, let me put it that way. Um, it makes a huge difference. You are able to change if your heart is soft. You're able to hear other people's perspectives and, and maybe change your own because your heart is soft. You change, you, you, again, your mind can be changed because of, of, your, of, of your heart being soft. Uh, you can admit that you're wrong if your heart is soft. Uh, you can show empathy and, and enter into someone else's pain when your heart is soft. And of course, conversely, when your heart is hot, actually you find yourself struggling to show empathy, struggling to admit when you're wrong, to ask for forgiveness, to change your mind. There's a sense that without a soft heart, we find ourselves immovable. And the Bible actually talks about the hardness of heart. Even, you know, not just Jesus who obviously taught about the things that make us unclean. It's not what we put into our mouths. It's, it comes out of our mouths. And Jesus said it comes out of, as Proverbs also talks about, the wellspring, the, our hearts. What is on the inside actually determines whether we are clean or unclean, you know. And so this hardness of heart has been a problem in, in, in human history ever since hearts have been beating <laughs> you know ever since that first heartbeat you know that some, some of you are, are, are um, uh, you know mothers or mothers to be and you know you go to the doctor and they listen and hear that little heartbeat that little heart that little heart the bible says Woo! it's got some dark things inside that is going to come out eventually and, and rear its head and actually in jeremiah and i mean I, when you listen to that overview you would have realized that actually Jeremiah is a dark book. It's a very dark book. But there's this glimmer of hope, sort of Jeremiah 30 to 33. You know, I mean, I, I, I am not a word counter. And, you know, and uh, if you just take the chapters, the way that it's been divided for us as modern readers, you might say it's not quite in the middle. But scholars say that that chapter 30 to 33 finds itself quite at the center of, of two you know, equal kind of dark sides. 
And in that center is actually what we're going to be focusing on, what, what, what the promises that are coming out of that section. And he alluded to the fact that Moses, when the commandments were given and the instructions, the law was given to Israel in you know, sort of the end of Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy 25 to Deuteronomy 28 and then and Deuteronomy 30, you know, Moses actually predicted that even though you are given, you, you are set free from slavery by the grace and mercy of God, and then he gave you these guidelines for your for your you're good, so you may prosper, so it may go well to you, but you have hard hearts on the inside, and when you, he wasn't saying if you, he was kind of like, look, I've walked with you long enough, Israel, to know that when you walk away from the Lord, the curses of this covenant, saying that if you, if you follow the Lord, you'll be, ble- you'll be blessed, and if you do not, you'll be cursed. The curses will come upon you, and they include exile. And, 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 and even Moses, as he's saying, I know this is coming. I know your hearts are hard. Therefore, you are going to walk away from the Lord and these curses will come upon you. You will be exiled. And then he says, verse 3, chapter 30, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. And in verse 6, he says, The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is, Jeremiah picks up on that promise when he, when he warns Israel of the, of the impending doom and then lives through it himself, but then he, he, he picks up in the middle of that on this promise that their hearts would be changed. So yes, if you read Jeremiah cover to cover, it'll take you some time, you might have to stop and Rewind a little bit. It, 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 was, it, it wasn't an easy read. I'm just going to be honest with you. But it's because it, it's, it, it's pretty dark and pretty epic. You see the important picture of how persistent obedience, and I want you to understand that because the Lord, the Bible says, is merciful and slow to anger. When you read the scriptures and you see the horrors that people do against the Lord, and then you, you, know, you compare that with the judgment, you must come to the conclusion that the Lord is, in fact, slow to anger. He is, in fact, merciful. And this is the case. Persistent obedience led to the destruction that we see here in Jeremiah. It wasn't like a one strike, one and you're out. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Many, 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 many strikes, many generations, many warnings, many prophets have been sent, many messages. This is what you will discover in here. So there's clearly this overarching theme that yes, persistent disobedience will lead to destruction. Actually, if you're going to choose, you know, to do wrong, eventually, it's going to catch up with you. And that's what we see. And, you know, they alluded to that in this video. And I think it'd be a great place for us to camp in. It's really in Jeremiah chapter 7. Because it kind of explains what will happen and why it will happen in, in great detail. It's, it's chapter 7, so it's summarized. You know, there's 50 odd chapters in, in Jeremiah. So let's read that together. I wasn't joking when I say pull out your Bibles because, uh, I, I mean, we're going to try and put it on screen for you, but we're going to read quite a few verses here because I just think that Jeremiah does a great job. I might just, you know, like a rapper, just do a little sidekick and repeat a line or two and tell you why. But I, I think there's some gold in here. So Jeremiah chapter 7, we're going to read the first 27 verses. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1 to 27. Let's go. Let's, let's go. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, 
amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all those abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my, dwell, my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all of the offspring of Ephraim. Just this Bible code for Israel. So a little bit of history here. Uh, this was written between the fall of the Assyrian Empire. They actually captured the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. They've, they've already been you know, dragged away. And Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, uh, is still in place. And so the, the, the Assyrian Empire has fallen and the Babylonian Empire is, is on the rise. And that's when this word comes out. And actually, the, the people in Judah who are now worshiping in the temple, they're thinking to themselves, man, we got the temple at least. You know, because look, we're still here. Here we are in the temple. We're able to worship. We're able to make sacrifices. The temple must bring us luck, must bring us good luck, because look what happened to the northern kingdom. Those guys are, you know, were taken out by the Assyrians, and actually now you know, Babylon's casting its shadow uh, over Israel, but they're like, no, we're fine. And God is saying, listen here, I am not interested in your external displays of worship. You come in here into this temple, you think it's a lucky charm, you think that you know, you've got a couple of beads going or whatever it is people think, you know, like a little book they carry with them or a little, little lock of hair. They think, oh, if I just have this, you know, I'll be fine. You know, people have all sorts of little things where they think, oh, just this coin, I've got to take this coin wherever I go because this coin, you know, some people have a little horn hanging out there, uh, you know, in the middle of their car, you know, protect them from the eye and all sorts of things, you know, uh, and, and they're treating the temple like that. Like it's this lucky charm and they're thinking, well, because we're still here and Northern Kingdom is not, I think we've got something good going here in this structure. And God is saying, no, I don't like what's happening here. It's just external worship uh, and I'm not interested in it. You're breaking the Ten Commandments. You are committing adultery. This is the language that he uses. Like you're cheating on me because you're running after the other idols as well. I'm not 
only God. You are, you know, putting me on the shelf with all these false gods, these false idols. And Jeremiah, just like Isaiah, has got a great job at mocking, you know, idolatry, you know, creating, uh, worshiping created things instead of the creator. And how silly and how dumb that is. But again, when the heart does things the mind cannot understand, right? Like your heart is hard. You run after false idols. And this is what's happening to them. That cannot save, that cannot change. And, uh, you know, he tells them, tells them that it's like a den of robbers, the temple. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know if you watched Stranger Things, the, last, the latest series. And if you didn't watch it, you know what, you've had enough time. I'm going to spoil it for you. But there is, a, um, there is a baddie called Yuri, the Russian. Always, I don't know why, poor Russians. They're always, they're always the bad guys. But he, he smuggles illegally stuff. And guess where he stores all his loot? In a church, absolutely. Eventually, when he like, helps the prisoner escape, you know, uh, he takes him to the church. It's like the den of robbers. That's really what this place is. This is what God is accusing Israel of. It's like you've, you're, you're robbers. You, you steal. It's like in the old westerns when they go and they steal a you know, robber bank. They're robbers, and then they take all that money, and they go run into the church, and they think, oh, we're going to be fine. We're in the church now. That's, that's what's happening. That's what God is saying. It's, it's, it's a picture of bad people hiding in a good place. That's what, but it's not going to happen. You know, we have to stop for a moment and think, hey, you know, there's a couple of, some, some of that might apply to us, that analogy. You know, you might come on a Sunday, you might even watch online. You think, oh, I'm doing my online church, you know, and I join my community group. And actually, you might use all those rituals as a lucky charm, thinking that because you do those things, God must bless you and he loves you. And that's not the gospel. We don't find ourselves doing these things to secure blessing, to, to not be attacked by, you know, so-called the Babylonian en enemy. God is interested in the motives. Why are we? Why do you come? Why do you watch? That's more important than watching and coming and being here. So there's a little warning in that for us as well. Maybe we've got stuck in a little rut and we use our Sunday attendance and our community group and our Bible reading as sort of lucky charms when actually our hearts are not there, not devoted and uh, loving the Lord. And so, you know, I, I don't have a lot of time to, to go into that, but he, he, he talked about Shiloh. I think that's how you pronounce it. At least that's how I pronounce it. And, uh, and he said, I want you to remember what happened at Shiloh. This is what God is saying to the kingdom of Judah. So what happened there? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel, uh, that's even before they chose Saul as a king. Actually, the Philistines, Philistines they, um, they captured the ark that was in the, in the tabernacle. There was no temple yet. And, uh, and so they took, you know, again, that was the presence of God in the temple of God, the tabernacle at that stage. And it, was, it wasn't near Jerusalem. It was a little further away. And again, thought that if we have this, we're good. And actually, God you know, said, no, you, 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 you know, your heart's far from me. And actually, that didn't bring the security and protection that they thought it would. And so it was taken away. Later in 2 Samuel, you'll see that David actually, you know, after Saul messes up, David becomes king. He actually goes and he gets the ark and he brings it back to Jerusalem. That's why Jerusalem actually got the temple and eventually became the place now, the central place of worship. But he said, I want you, don't really forget Shiloh. It's Jerusalem now. But it used to be Shiloh and they did the same thing. They trusted in the, the externals, when internally they were broken, and actually judgment came upon them. Why, if, if it came upon them, if I was willing to destroy my ark, uh, my temple, my tabernacle, and allow my ark to be carried away by idol idolaters, why would I protect you in this, in this temple? 
Why do you think you're going to... You know, this is the warning that he throws out to them. And Jeremiah, you know, he's so audacious. He just preaches in the very place that they think they're safe. Is the one where he's standing. He's going, ah, 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 you're not. Okay, so let's, uh, let's keep reading. Verse 16. So I'm going to read from uh, verse 16 onwards. You're still there, Liam? Great stuff. Thanks. As for you, do not pray for this people. Now he's talking to Jeremiah, by the way. He's saying, Jeremiah, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of, or pray for them and do not intercede for her or uh, intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to the other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Let's stop there for a moment. God is saying to Jeremiah, Before you intercede for these people, zip it. This is, a, this is a dire moment because intercession up until this stage has been a really good thing for the nation of Israel. It started actually in Genesis. You think of Abraham, you know, when God's like, I'm going to take Sodom and Gomorrah out and Abraham intercedes. Please, Lord, if there's 50 people, would you save it? If there's 40, would you save it? You know, intercession start there. I mean, if only he had carried on and said if there was one, I mean, maybe God would have relented. And then you see Moses, you know, with the calf that they, they made and eventually, you know, breaking uh, all the complaining that, they, that, that Israel, uh, you know, moaned about the Lord wanting to uh, harm them and not bless them because they didn't have meat and they longed for the cucumbers in Egypt. And, you know, when all of this stuff happened, Moses interceded. Please, please don't wipe them out. Please, please, you know, remember your promise. So interceding worked many times in the Old Testament. And this shows you the condition of Judah that God is even saying, don't ask me. Shh. You know, it's, it's pretty dire. But our question in this moment, as we think about the gospel, go, oh my goodness, who would intercede for us? I want you to think about that. Who? You know, if he's saying, Jeremiah, don't pray for them. And maybe, maybe if it's like, don't pray for me, Vic. Well, well, if Jeremiah is not going to pray for me, who's going to pray for me? That, that must be the question. Who's going to intercede for, for, for them? It's pretty bad. And the reason was, you know, even family worship, that's the extent to their deception. Uh, they were supposed to orient their families around the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the covenant God, the Lord. Uh, you know, teach it to their children. And, 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 and what are they doing here? They're having little family picnics for idols. That's what they're happening. You know, they're making bread. The whole family's involved. The kids are helping not to worship the Lord, to worship false idols. And that's why God's saying, zip it. Don't pray for them. So let's read in verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may go well with you, may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. There it's again. And they went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, 
day after day. If you keep reading in Jeremiah, you get eventually uh, somewhere in the chapter 26, somewhere around there, where it actually says decades, 20 odd years. You know, Jeremiah is even saying, I have been telling you for 20 years. And so here God's saying, persistently, I've sent them. Verse 26, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So first of all, we see that God wants them to flourish. When he took them out of Egypt, he gave them those commandments. He actually didn't talk about sacrifices quite yet. You know, that's what's so fascinating. God is here talking about the fact that if the sacrifices were there, it would have been on the basis of faith that they say they trust and obey the Lord. That's why he's saying right now, just eat the sacrifices that you make in the temple because that they were not supposed to do. They were supposed to consume all the, all the meat on the sacrifices. Now God's saying, those external sacrifices mean nothing. Eat it. I mean, the law says you shouldn't, but because your heart isn't there. You're not sacrificing in faith. You're not making those sacrifices. You're not obeying me in faith. So it doesn't count at all. It means nothing. Okay, let's fast forward to verse 30. We're going to read verse 30 to 34. Chapter 7, verse 30 to 34. I'll wait for it to be on screen before I go. That's all good. great i'm getting my son to read jeremiah which i i think is good for him <laughs> for the sons of judah have done evil in my sight declares the lord they have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it and they have built the high places of topheth which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land shall become a waste. It's pretty dark. I mean, that's how, imagine I conclude my sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, that's how, that's how that sermon ends. And because he, he's, he's saying, this is, this is how bad it is. They're sacrificing kids to the pagan god, Molech. And, 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 and God is saying, it's so ironic. A terrible irony is coming. The place where you sacrifice, you will be sacrificed. You know, you see how it's like they are reaping really what they're sowing. I mean, all forms of judgment, really, if you, look, if you zoom out and you look at the Lord judging in the, justly, he is giving people what they want. He is, he, he, in many ways, we are the ones pronouncing judgment when we ignore persistently the goodwill of the Lord. And so and this is how far they've declined. It's going to be so bad, he says, that actually they won't, you know, you'll be left unburied and the scavengers will come. A really terrible, terrible outcome. You know, I'm no Greek uh, scholar, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it, it is quite fascinating that the, the Valley of Hinnom, this was translated in Aramaic as Gehinnom. And later in Greek, 
it was translated as Gehenna, and that's actually the New Testament word for hell. And it's the primary metaphor that Jesus uses when he talks about the final judgment. So remember, Jesus is teaching about hell. He's double-clicking, and he's, he's pointing back to this particular valley of slaughter that is spoken of here in Jeremiah. And I'm going to just quote Tim Mackey here, so just listen to me. It's not on screen. This is what he says. For Jesus, hell or Gehenna is final judgment reserved for those who, like Judah, persistently reject God's call to repentance. I just want to stop there for a moment because we might think this is, this is the Lord uh, responding to their disobedience. They're not doing what God is calling them to do. But actually, this is them not repenting. If you think about it, this is God saying, stop it, turn around, change your ways. This is Him inviting them to, 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 to stop the, the, uh, the injustice, uh, he, not, not to say, I need you to, do, to live a clean slate and to follow me 100%. It's almost like God is like, hey, you've messed up. I get it, but I want to forgive you. You just need to repent. And they refuse to repent. Can, can you see that? That's what, sometimes we just think, oh, you know, we just got to be straight laced for the Lord. No, actually the Lord is so merciful and so kind that he asks of repentance of us. That's the thing he's looking for, not perfection. That's why Jesus came. Uh, you know, it's, it's baked into this. Can, can you see? Anyway, let me re continue reading his quote. God persistently called for repentance, and they didn't uh, repent. And it is for those seeking, so judgment is for those seeking false security and something other than faith in God's gracious provision so that they can pursue their idols and continue in destructive waves, uh, ways of life. Judgment is people who seek false security like they did in the temple uh, so that they can pursue their idols. Like, oh, no, you know, I'm a Christian. You know, uh, I believe there's a God. And then live their lives as if no one's in charge of their life. There is no God. That's the discrepancy. He's saying, like, judgment's actually reserved for people who persistently uh, don't repent of that uh, autonomy and idolatry. And so in the end of this passage we just read, if you can remember, it wasn't just a dark reversal of them sacrificing you know, children that the Lord says, I've never, ever, that's not even entered into my mind. Not just that dark irony of that sacrificing being turned around where they find themselves being sacrificed there as part of judgment by the Babylonians. But there's another reversal. It's a good reversal that's going to happen because he, he, he says here, the, the sound of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the, the sound of gladness and of singing and the voice of mirth, it will not be heard in anymore. And actually, if we continue to read Jeremiah, the same language is used when God talks about flipping things around. He's saying, you will hear it again. You will hear, you'll hear weddings. You'll hear singing. You'll hear joy. So it's, it's very important for us to remember verse 34 chapter, and chapter 7 because later on, the opposite is declared as a promise of God what will do, what, what, what God will do. Now, of course, if we fast forward back to, uh, in front of the New Testament, this temple sermon must surely ring a bell in the life of Jesus. Matthew 21, you know, Jesus also stands in the temple and he overthrows the tables, literally, you know, that's a figure of speech for us, you know, overturning the tables, but he did that in the temple. And, uh, you know, it's, it was because of the same problem, empty ritualistic activities that happened. 
They were just going through the motion. And yet outside, uh, you know, justice was totally neglected. Um, actually, they put their national security in this temple, even though they were under the thumb of Rome, which is, by the way, a New Testament you know, uh, metaphor for Babylon. Um, th- there's a, always links made between the Roman Empire and, the, and, and Babylon. And so you know, Israel was in the same spot when Jesus showed up in the temple. You know, trusting in the externals, but the inside was a problem. And uh, when he you know, stood in there and he said, my house will be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. If you were a good Jew, you would go, I read that before. Jeremiah chapter 7. In fact, wait a minute, this is a temple. You know, you, they, were, they, they must have at least thought, whoa, something is happening over here. Jesus is calling back to that time. And so is he saying that God is about to destroy the temple again as an act of judgment? We know that ultimately it happened 70 AD, but Jesus said he is the temple. He proclaimed in that temple, you destroy this temple and in three days it will be rebuilt. He was referring to his own body in that moment, the ultimate temple. And he knew in that moment, I think he was saying, like, I'm going to bring rebellious exiles back, okay, when this temple gets destroyed. It's, 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 I think that that's, that's some of that that's taking place, and we'll learn about that more in a moment. I was going to, like, you know, take a little rabbit trail and t- tell you some funny things about Jeremiah that you'll find in the preceding chapters, but I'm not going to do that. There's some real funny stuff about false prophets and all sorts of things that you can check out yourself, okay? So... As I said, it's a dark and a detailed book in terms of the judgment predicted, you know, pre-chapter 30, so 20, chapter, up to tw- chapter 25 or so, as well as the judgment played out, which Jeremiah was a part of. He saw it with his own eyes. He was even, you know, being captured because of his, his uh, uh, you know, prophecies. He was imprisoned uh, because of it, uh, his, improf- his prophecies about exile coming their way, and he saw it with his very own eyes. Eyes. <laughs> All right, I'm losing it. So dark and detailed in terms of the predicted uh, judgment. But that's precisely why chapters 30 to 33 shine so brightly. Like if you read the Jeremiah in its context, you get to chapter 30 and, and to 33, and you go, Wait, this is a bizarre bit of hope in the middle of pretty dark, uh, pretty dark uh, um, uh, narrative. And of course, it's not out of place. It's strategically placed there. And it has the opposite feel. And you know, just before you get to chapter 30, you get to those classic fridge magnet scriptures, Jeremiah 29, hey? We all know, know those. And actually, I've seen them in a totally different light now that I've read chapter 1 to 51, you know? We all know those, you know, 29 verse 4 to 7. I'm not going to read them now, uh, Liam, because most people know them, you know? Uh, he's like, I, I want you to um, build houses and live in them and Plant gardens and eat the produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. You know, uh, give them in marriage so they may may have children. Multiply there. Don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and and pray for the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. I, I, I read that now and I think it's a little less sweet and a little more sweet. Because I realize now, this is what the Lord's saying to them. 70 years, peeps, settle down. I mean, if you think about it, like, yeah, of course, God's intent is that they prosper. He, you know, he's, that's how gracious and merciful he is, that even in exile, he's saying, you know, you experience some blessing. But I also have to just say, like, I think God said that so that they don't, like, kind of wait around thinking it's going to be over soon. In fact, the false prophets were the very ones that said to them, two years, you'll be out of here. It's fine, people. Don't plant anything. Don't settle down. 
two years, the Babylon's neck will be broken. You know, and they, again, that's the bit I wanted to talk about. And those were the false prophets. And so Jeremiah's coming and going, no, 70 years. I'm going to write this down, send it out, settle down, people. Okay, it's all of a sudden when you see it in context, you go, okay, that makes totally sense. It's precisely because this is going to take a while that God's saying, marry and have children. Okay. And then there's, of course, the, the chapter 29, verse 10 to 14, another popular one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans uh, for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I read this, and I read Jeremiah 30 to 33, and I realize, yeah, a future hope's coming. He's promised, saying that he'll bring them back, but actually in the distant future. All right, that, that, this, when we read that, it's, it actually applies to what we'll hear about in a moment about the new covenant. Verse 13 gives us a glimpse of that in chapter 29. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's already a glimpse of this heart problem that I opened up this sermon with. It's going to be fixed. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll restore your fortunes, and etc., etc. And so chapter 29 sets the tone for the ray of hope that comes through chapters 30 to 33. So Liam, can you put this on screen for me? Chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. Let's read that together. You still tracking with me, everybody good? All right, here we go. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There's the imagery of unfaithfulness, of adultery they committed. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me and then in the end there it says for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more wow this is what Moses pointed to in Deuteronomy a new covenant that will come that's not like the old a new covenant is required because clearly the old isn't sufficient. Up to that point, it's pretty obvious. And actually, this new covenant was going to secure not only forgiveness of sin, which is why they're being exiled, but also freedom from sin. This sounds like a good deal. This sounds like an amazing promise that is on the way. And this is why in Luke 22, when Jesus stands up and he breaks the bread and he holds up the cup, what, does, what words does he use in Luke 22? He uses Jeremiah words. He says, this is the cup, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so we, all of a sudden, all those connections need to fire. Blood, new covenant. Jeremiah saying, old covenant doesn't work. New covenant's going to come. Forgive their iniquities. What's the exact word? Help me here. Uh, remember their sin no more. This cup that represents the blood of Jesus is what's going to make this new covenant come to fruition. He's ushering it in. Let's read 32, verse 37 to 41. Chapter 32, verse 37 to 41. The promises just keep coming. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger. And um, let's read verse 38. And they shall be my people. I will be their God I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good 
and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I'll plant them in this land. I mean, isn't that amazing? A great act of God's mercy and forgiveness will transform the hearts of people into obedience and love. And, and we know Jesus taught that. That was the problem. That's the solution required, is the heart needs to change. Matthew 5 to 7, Mark chapter 7, you, you'll find Jesus' teaching on that. Let's read a few more verses. Chapter 33, verses um, 8 to 10, 11. 8 to 11. Okay. Doing great, boy. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And the city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. There's a glimpse of the gospel that our devotion is a response to God's love and forgiveness. That, that God's love and forgiveness precedes our service and sacrifice to him and for him. Hey, that's what's happening over here. Verse 10, thus says the Lord in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. This is the end of chapter seven. Listen to how God flips it around. In the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And you and I know something they don't know. You know, of course, God uses this imagery of I am your husband and you are unfaithful, but ultimately Jesus is our bridegroom. And now we are in that joyful moment knowing we're gonna marry him. We're gonna marry our maker. Like we are starting to hear those singing. I love how worship ended where you talked about this glorious day we look forward to. Today, those songs are in our mouths. Today we sing joyful. Today we walk in some of what is promised here because of the coming of Jesus. And, you know, we have to read chapter 33, verses 14 to 18. The days are coming, declares the Lord. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel. And here it comes, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And, in, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That is the gospel, my friends, that you and I have a righteousness not of our own but a righteousness that comes from Jesus. A righteousness that we could never have in obeying the old covenant, the law. But Jesus fulfilled it 100% and then credits us with his perfection, his righteousness. That's why we say the Lord is our righteousness. He is the branch that sprung up for David. The promise in verse 17, it says, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that, the eternal king from the line of David. Never lack a man to sit on the throne. And listen to this in verse 18. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer. This is what Jesus became for us. 
the king on the throne eternal, and the interceding priest, who also was the sacrifice, offering himself once for all. Friends, it's a pretty epic book. It comes together in, in the most amazing ways for us who are on the other side of the new covenant fulfilled. Who is that branch? Of course, it's Jesus. And you know, God told Jeremiah not to pray for those bad people. But Jesus was given permission to pray for you and me. And he is still praying for you and me. That's good news. When we mess up, we have one who intercedes for us right now with the Father saying, Hey, I'm perfect. They're in me. I paid for it. It wouldn't be just to pay for sins twice. It's paid for already. No judgment exile upon them. They are free. And then he gives us his spirit to empower us to live free. Not just to live forgiven, but to be free from the power of sin. And in many ways, Jesus to you and me is the place that we as robbers run into. He's our den. Now robbers run into the temple of Jesus and we run out righteous. We run in robbers. We run out righteous. It's pretty good news, isn't it? And we've got two minutes left. Let's close our eyes. If you're here tonight and you, you, you maybe you're listening online and uh, you get this heart problem and you've tried to like, try to like wrangle your heart and change it externally, done all these external things and actually the message of Jeremiah is showing you that there's another way. There's another way. That you need a heart transplant. And that the new covenant promises the new heart. And the new covenant comes at the expense of Jesus' life. He paid the full price. He was pierced. He was bruised. He was crucified. As payment, just payment for our sin. So, so if you, if you want to surrender your life, it's knowing that actually that's the only way you will have a heart that will serve God. And if you make mistakes, that's the only way that your, your sin would be covered because you'll be in Jesus, the righteous one. And you will be given new desires to please and serve him because of his goodness and great faithfulness and forgiveness to you. Not to earn it, but you will receive it in this moment as a gift I want to encourage you to do that. You just in your own words say, Jesus, here I am. I surrender to you. I admit I'm a sinner. You're a savior. I need you. Forgive me. Save me. Fill me with your spirit. Hey, you say all of those things in your own way. Just mean it and the Lord will meet you. And then for the rest of us here tonight, God's calling us to share this incredible news with others. But it's got to be good news for you, to you first. Eh? And so, Lord, would you come now? You, you've given, I trust most of us in this room, this new heart. But maybe we have grown cold a little. Maybe we've slipped into the ways of the kingdom of Judah and have started kind of using you as a lucky charm. And we have forgotten your kindness and your goodness. 
and you're, repent, you're calling us to repentance and, and always forgiving us when we say we're sorry. We, we've, we've stopped saying sorry, actually, because we've forgotten about your perfection and, and your, 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 your glory. And we're seeing it once more. And we ask you, Lord, to change us. Lord, our hearts, we, we thank you for your spirit that comes and sheds the love of the Father abroad into our hearts. That's the job of the spirit. It makes us cry out, Father, to you. That convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit that reminds us of the words of Jesus. The Holy Spirit that gives us the desires to please you, to live for you, and empowers us to do so. We surrender and our hearts are wide open. These hearts that need continual filling, our hearts are open. Come and fill us. Come and change us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are praying for us. Even though I'm praying to the Father for us, Jesus, your prayers are better than mine. And so I ask you, Lord, to... to to continue to bless our church and ultimately help us to be people who treasure the truth of the gospel and live our lives out of that place. In Jesus' name, amen.